Let's seek the Lord in prayer. Our wonderful, loving Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being here today. We're going to study a very solemn subject, the chronology of the judgment, which will set the stage for understanding several of the other lectures that we will have in the future. And therefore, we plead for your wisdom in a special way this evening. Help us to understand what we're studying, and not only to understand it, but help us to be firm and strong in the trying times ahead. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of approaching your throne boldly in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for hearing us, because we do come in that wonderful name. Amen. As I mentioned in my prayer, this evening we are going to study the topic which is titled the chronology of the judgment. And I'd like to begin by uh, mentioning what many of you are probably acquainted with, and that is the Apostles' Creed. Now, I must say that the Apostles' Creed is not apostolic. In other words, it came into existence several centuries after the death of the Apostles. But I want to read one small section of the Apostles' Creed, and then the rest of our study we're going to try and deal with the issue of the judgment that is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. This is what it says. Jesus, and I quote, ascended to heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. In other words, the Apostles' Creed, which I must repeat, is not apostolic, it was not written by the Apostles, states that when Jesus comes at his second coming, he is going to judge the living and the dead. Now my question is, is this statement really accurate? Does the judgment really take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ, or does it take place before Jesus comes to this earth? Does this judgment take place in heaven, or does the judgment of the living and the dead take place on earth? In other words, the question is, does the judgment take place before the second coming in heaven, or at the second coming on earth? I believe that the answer to these questions is found in a careful study of Daniel chapter 7. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to move through this chapter basically verse by verse. Now let's begin with verses 1 to 3 which actually is the introductory scene to the vision of Daniel chapter 7. And by the way, it gives us also the date. It says there in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then 
He wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, now he's going to tell us what this dream was. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now let's stop there for a moment because we have two symbols that we want to take a look at. The first symbol is the four winds, and the second symbol is the great sea. Now what does the Bible mean when in prophecy, symbolically, it refers to winds? You know, we talk about the winds of what? The winds of war, the winds of strife. In other words, winds represent wars. They represent cataclysmic events, nation rising against nation. And you can notice this, for example, in Revelation chapter 7 and verses 1 to 3, where the four angels are holding what? Are holding the four winds of strife. And what happens when they release the winds? Oh, there is a cataclysm in the world as a result of releasing the four winds. So the winds are winds of strife. They represent wars and they represent conflicts between nations. Now the other symbol that we have in this introductory passage is the sea. Now it speaks about the great sea. Now what is represented by the sea? It says that the winds are beating up the waves of the sea. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 17 and verses 12 and 13. See, the Bible explains itself. The Bible explains its own symbols. When we find a symbol in Daniel, we go to other texts in Scripture that help us understand what that symbol means. Isaiah chapter 17 and verses 12 and 13. Here the prophet Isaiah says, Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the what? Of the seas. So what do the seas represent? The multitude of many what? Peoples. And they make noise. Let's continue reading. And to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of what? Of many waters. So what does the rushing of many waters represent? The rushing of what? Nations. And then it says in verse 13, the nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. So what is represented by the sea? Multitudes of what? Multitudes of nations that are in turmoil because the winds are actually blowing the waves of the sea and the sea is rushing like the rush of many nations or many waters. Now let's go in our study to verse 4, actually verse 3. It says there, and four great beasts. What do beasts represent in prophecy? Beasts represent nations or kingdoms. We're going to notice that Daniel himself is going to explain it. And four great beasts came up from the what? From the sea. So these nations arise amidst what? Amidst wars and turmoil. And it continues saying, each different from the other. So you have four beasts. 
Now let's notice the first beast, the lion. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 4. The first was like a lion, the king of beasts, by the way. And the lion had what? Eagle's wings. Now what does the lion represent? There's no doubt whatsoever that the lion represents the same thing as the gold in the head of the image. The lion represents the kingdom of Babylon. We know that not only because of the parallel with Daniel 2, but we also know it because at the entrances to all of the gates in the ancient city of Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar, there were sphinxes that were lions. Furthermore, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7, which I'm not going to read, but you can write it down, Jeremiah 4, 4 verse 7, compares Babylon, Babylon's invasion of Judah as the attack of a lion. So in other words, Scripture as well as archaeology show that the lion is a symbol of Babylon. Now what do the wings represent? Well, the wings represent speed or swiftness of conquest. But now I want you to notice what happens to this lion. It continues saying there in the second part of verse 4, I watched till its wings were plucked off, which means that it's no longer going to what? It's no longer going to be a conquering power. It's not going to be swift to conquest. And then it continues saying, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. What do you think a lion is like with a man's heart? <laughs> Have you ever heard of Richard, Richard the Lionhearted, King of England? Why was he called the Lionhearted? Because he was a king that had a lot of what? Courage. Now, I hate to bring this up, but have you ever watched The Wizard of Oz? What was the problem with the lion in The Wizard of Oz? He was looking for what? He was looking for courage, that's right. And so basically, this is telling us that at some point, this lion was going to cease the swift, swiftness of its conquering, and it was actually eventually going to fall, because it would lose its courage. And then in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 5, we have a bear. Let's read about the bear. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. Now don't forget this detail, because we're going to come back to it um, in our lecture, in fact, tomorrow evening. It says, a second like a bear, and it was what? It was raised up on one side. In other words, one side of the bear was higher than the other side of the bear. And then it says it had how many ribs? It had three ribs between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. Now this beast represents the second kingdom, the same, same as the breast and arms of silver in the image of Daniel chapter 2, which is which kingdom? represents the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. We're going to notice in our study tomorrow that uh, the kingdom of Medes and Persians had one of the two kingdoms that was taller than the other, and the strong one came up last. That's why the bear is raised up on one side. The three ribs represent the three 
kingdoms that were conquered by Medo-Persia so that this nation could ascend to power. Let me mention what those three nations are. The first is Lydia, which is found in ancient Turkey or Anatolia in Asia Minor. This kingdom was conquered by Medo-Persia in the year 547 BC. The second is the city of Babylon. The story is told in Daniel chapter 5. And Babylon was overcome in the year 539. And the third nation or kingdom that was defeated by the Medes and Persians so that they could ascend to power was actually Egypt, which was conquered in the year 525. So this fits, fits precisely with what happened with the history of the Medes and Persians, and tomorrow evening we're going to give additional details in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8. Now let's go to our third beast, the leopard. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 6. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 6. After this I looked and there was another, like a leopard. Question, is a leopard a swift beast? Absolutely, but this there's something else about this leopard. Notice, it says like a leopard which had on its back, what? Four wings of a bird. Was this beast a lot swifter to conquest than the lion who had two wings? Absolutely. Now let me share this with you. This beast represents the kingdom of Greece. Who was the first king of the kingdom of Greece? We'll study this more, more closely tomorrow. Who was the first king? The first king is very famous. He's known as Alexander the Great. Do you know how long it took Alexander the Great to conquer all of the Far East from Egypt all the way to the Indus Valley in India? It took Alexander the Great a period of only three years to conquer the known world of that time. I would say that that was rather swift. Now, notice it had four wings of a bird. Now, tomorrow when we study Daniel chapter 8, we're going to notice that another symbol is used to represent Greece, and that symbol is a goat. And the Bible says that the goat is going so fast that it doesn't even touch the ground. In other words, that's another way of saying that this was a nation that swiftly conquered everything that it found in its way. And then you'll notice the last part of the verse says, the beast also had what? Also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. We're going to notice in our study uh, tomorrow of Daniel chapter 8 that the kingdom of Greece, when Alexander the Great died, was divided into precisely four permanent kingdoms. That is, until Rome came and overcame Greece. So these four heads on the leopard represent the four divisions of the kingdom of Greece when Alexander the Great died. Now I mentioned yesterday, we don't have to guess at these three kingdoms. We don't even have to go to history books. Because the book of Daniel itself identifies the first three kingdoms. You see, uh, in Daniel chapter 2, God said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are this what? This head of gold. And then after him would arise another kingdom, which we identified as which kingdom? The Medes and Persians. They are mentioned in Daniel chapter 5. And the third kingdom, Daniel 8, refers to it by name as Greece. So there's no doubt whatsoever what the lion, the bear, and the leopard represent because the book of Daniel itself tells us what 
these beasts represent. But now let's notice the fourth beast. It's found in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. Remember the legs of iron? This is parallel to the legs of iron. Listen carefully. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceeding strong. It had huge teeth. Yeah, what kind of teeth? Iron teeth. So you have legs of iron, and you have teeth of what? Teeth of iron. And this is the reason why the great historian of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon, who wrote the famous series of historical books, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, called the Roman Empire the Iron Monarchy of Rome. And then the last part of verse 7 says, It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. If you could see the way the Roman armies conquered other nations, this is literally true. They had iron weapons, and they just mowed down and trampled on everything they found in their way. Now let's move on to Daniel chapter 7, and uh, verse 7, the last part of the verse. It says, it was, this fourth beast was different from all the beasts that were before it, and now notice carefully, it had what? It had ten horns. Where did those ten horns rise from? It must have been from the head of the fourth beast, right? Are they on the head of the fourth beast? Yes. So are they Roman in a certain sense? If the fourth beast is Rome, and the horns are on the head of the fourth beast, these horns must come from what? From Rome, exactly. Remember the feet of the image? Did the feet of the image have iron? What did the iron legs represent? The Roman Empire. Does Rome continue in the ten toes of the feet? Yes. Does Rome continue here in the ten horns that come from the head that represents Rome? Absolutely. Now, I want you to notice what uh, we find then in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. It says, once again, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now what do those ten horns represent? They represent the divisions of the Roman Empire when the empire fell because of the barbarian invasions from the northern sector of the empire. I'm going to mention those nations, we're going to come back to them later on in the seminar. The names of those ten kingdoms are the Alemanni, where the Germans come from, the Franks, the Burgundians, the Suevi, the Visigoths, the Saxons, that would be uh, Great Britain, the Lombards, which would be Italy, the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Allow me to read you just a statement that was written by Jerome. Do you know who Jerome was? He lived in the fourth century. Uh, he had a lot to do with the translation of the Vulgate, the Latin, Latin Vulgate. He was a great scholar in Greek and in Hebrew. And he could see what was happening in the Roman Empire in the 4th century. Notice what he had to say. Moreover, the 4th kingdom, which plainly pertains to the Romans, did he understand what the 4th kingdom was? Yes. Which clearly pertains to the Romans, is the iron which breaks in pieces and subdues all things. But its feet and toes are partly of iron and partly of clay which at this time, speaking about his time, 
at this time is most plainly attested. So when were the feet being fulfilled according to Jerome? In his time. And he continues saying, for just as in its beginning, nothing was stronger and more unyielding than the Roman Empire, so at the end of its affairs, nothing is weaker. Was this being fulfilled in the days of Jerome? Absolutely. In fact, all of the church fathers believed that the, the um, you remember that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the apostle Paul speaks about a power that was holding back the manifestation of the man of sin. All of the church fathers believed that the one that was holding back, or it says, as it says in the King James, letting, which means to hold back this antichrist from manifesting himself, was the continued existence of the Roman Empire. And they believed that when the Roman Empire was taken out of the way, the Antichrist would be revealed. And Jerome understood this very, very clearly. Now let's go on to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8, because we have the ten horns, just like we have ten toes with iron in them, but then what is added to the feet? We studied this yesterday. What is added to the feet? Clay. Is there something in Daniel 7 that is equivalent to the, to the clay? Absolutely. Notice Daniel 7 verse 8. I was considering the horns, that is the ten horns, and there was another what? Another horn, a little one, coming up what? Among them. Where was the little horn going to arise? In the Middle East, right? Of course not. It was going to arise among the ten. If the ten are the Western Roman Empire, where was the little horn going to arise? In Western Europe. Are you following me or not? Now notice, it continues saying here, in Daniel chapter 7 verse 8, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. And now notice, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. What does that mean, plucked out by the roots? It means that once they were plucked out, that was it. In other words, they would cease to exist. History proves that this is exactly what happened. You see, three of those kingdoms, of those ten kingdoms, were Arians. In other words, they believed that Jesus was a created being. And as a result, uh, the bishop of Rome influenced the power of the Roman state to fight against these three kingdoms to eradicate them. And they were eradicated. In the year, five, in the year 493, the Heruli were uprooted from history. No nation in Europe descends from them. In 534, the Vandals were uprooted. And in the year 538, the Ostrogoths were conquered in Rome. They suffered a terrible defeat. In other words, exactly the way the prophecy said, three of these ten kingdoms were uprooted, and there is no nation in Europe that descends from these three. Now, let's continue reading here. In verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking what? Pompous words. And so, up to verse 8, you have several kingdoms. You have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, 
the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is divided into ten kingdoms, and then among those ten kingdoms rises the little horn to power. Now we're not told up to verse 8 how long this little horn was going to rule. We have to go later on in the chapter to know how long this little horn was going to rule before it fell. Now I want you to notice what the next scene is. See, this little horn is persecuting the saints. He thinks he can change God's law. He's, uh, he's trampling the truth to the ground. And the Bible says that he's prospering. Everything is going well. But now I want you to notice how this situation is taken care of. The next scene, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, speaks about the judgment. Notice, I watched till thrones were put in place. Were the thrones there before? No, because they're put in place, right? And the Ancient of Days, who is the Ancient of Days? God the Father was what? Seated. What is, was he seated there before? No. At this point in the prophecy, he what? He sits. And now notice he is described. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Oh, so this was a throne that had what? Wheels. It is a movable throne. It moved there from somewhere else. Verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The what? The court was seated. That means that the judgment is going to what? Begin. And the books were what? Open. Where is this judgment taking place? This judgment is taking place in heaven. That's where the angels are, and that's where the Ancient of Days is. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father which art everywhere. No, he said, Our Father which art where? Which art in heaven. The Ancient of Days is in heaven. This scene, this judgment, is taking place in heaven. Now let's jump down to verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14, because the Father moves in this throne that has wheels into this place. He sits down, but then somebody else moves and joins him there. Notice verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Who is that? That's Jesus. One like the Son of Man coming. If he's coming, he must not have been there before, right? Where would he be coming from? If we're following the order of the sanctuary, where would he be coming from? Not the earth, no, of course not. From the holy place. Isn't that where Jesus has been ministering? Since he ascended to heaven in the holy place? So if he's moving, where is he moving from? From the holy, and what is the next apartment? The most holy. And so it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming. And some people think, see the second coming. Not the second coming. Let's continue reading. With the clouds of heaven. What are the clouds of heaven? The angels. And where is he coming to? To the earth? And his second coming? No. It says, he came to where? To the ancient of days. He's not coming to the earth here. He's going to where his father is going to perform a work of what? Judgment. 
And so it says, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they, that is the angels, the clouds, brought him near before him. And what does he go there for? Notice he goes there because the kingdom is going to be taken away from the little horn, and is going to be given to whom? To him. Do you remember our, our uh, study yesterday? What came after the ten toes and the clay? There was a gigantic stone that what? Hit the image, and the stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth, and that's Christ's everlasting what? Christ's everlasting kingdom. And so it continues saying, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. See, this is the climax of the vision of Daniel 2 as well. Which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Does the judgment begin after the little horn performs his evil work? Yes. Do we have an unbroken sequence? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, ten kingdoms, little horn, judgment. That's what I want us to see for now. Uh, we still don't know how long the little horn ruled, but we're going to see that in a few moments. Now, Daniel was grieved by this vision because he didn't understand it. So in Daniel chapter 7, in verses 15 through 18, we find Daniel expressing his grief and asking Gabriel to explain what this vision means. Let's read beginning at verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to, the one, to one of those who stood by and asked them the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And here comes a brief explanation. Those great beasts which are four, are four what? Four kings. But as we noticed yesterday, kings and kingdoms are what? Interchangeable. I'm going to prove that to you in a few moments from Daniel chapter 7. We already did it in Daniel chapter 2, remember? God said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, but then he says, after you will arise another kingdom. So it's not only Nebuchadnezzar as a person, it's his kingdom. We're going to notice the same thing here in Daniel chapter 7. Now, let's notice what it continues saying. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which arise out of the earth. But the saints, now notice, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. How were the saints treated during the period of the dominion of the little horn? The Bible says that they were what? They were trampled upon and they were persecuted unjustly. How is God going to solve that problem? He's going to perform a work of what? Of judgment. And in that judgment, He's going to pronounce a judgment against the little horn, and in favor of whom? And in favor of the saints that were persecuted during the 1260 years, and also a group that will be persecuted in the future. Are you following me? Now let's go to Daniel 7, verses 19 to 22. See, there's something that Gabriel did not explain that Daniel wanted to understand. And so it says there in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 19, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And he wanted to know about the ten horns that were on its head. 
and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. And then Daniel is still speaking, I was watching, and the same horn was making what? War against the saints, and prevailing against them. Was that just? No. Who was right? Was the little horn right and the saints wrong, or was it the other way around? It was the other way around. Did things have to be rectified? Yes, and God rectifies it by the judgment. Now notice what it continues saying, verse 21. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Until when? Ah, until the Ancient of Days came. And what did he come for? He was seated and the books were what? Open. Does the judgment rectify the wrong decisions that were made on earth? Absolutely. Does it vindicate the saints and condemn the little horn? Absolutely. Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came. If he came, he must not have been there before. Hello. And a judgment was made, what? In favor of the saints of the Most High. And notice that first the verdict is given, and then it says, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Is there is there a difference between when the verdict is given and when the verdict is implemented? Absolutely, because it says here, a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. That happens in heaven before the Ancient of Days where the Son of Man is. And then it says, the time came for the saints to what? To possess the kingdom. Question, even in the world today, is the sentence executed the same day that the sentence is pronounced? No. The sentence is given, and then after a time, the sentence is implemented, right? Do you have an investigation of the evidence before to see who's right and who's wrong? Absolutely. Do you suppose God is going to do an investigative judgment in heaven before Jesus comes to execute the judgment and give the reward? Yes, because when Jesus comes, he says he brings his reward with him, which means he must have determined before what that reward would be. Are you with me? Now, let's go to Daniel chapter 7 and verses 23 to 25 where Gabriel gives a fuller explanation because Daniel has said, I want to know about the, the fourth beast and I want to know about the ten horns. I want to know about the little horn. He says, Gabriel, all you told me was that these four beasts represent four kings. Come on, I want to know more than that. And so we find, beginning in verse 23, a fuller explanation of the fourth beast, the ten horns, and the little horn. Thus he said, I want you to notice that the fourth beast has three stages of existence. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. What kingdom is that? Rome. Which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. That's the first stage of the fourth beast. Now there's a second stage. The ten horns are ten kings, listen carefully, who shall what? Notice, does the fourth beast rule for a while before it has the horns? It sure does, because it says that the ten horns rise from the fourth beast. So the fourth beast has to exist before the ten horns come out. So it says, the ten horns are ten kings or kingdoms who shall arise from this kingdom. And now notice the third stage. Another shall rise, what? After them. Are you seeing the sequence? The fourth beast by itself the fourth beast with the ten horns, and then the fourth beast with the little horn. 
And so it says, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, shall subdue three kings. And now notice what he would do. He shall speak what? Pompous words against the Most High. Revelation identifies those pompous words as blasphemies. We're going to see that. And what else was he going to do? He shall what? Persecute the saints of the Most High. And shall intend to change times and law. Whose law? God's law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and what? And half a time. Now, let's take eight characteristics of this little horn to see if we can identify who the little horn is. We know what the fourth beast is, right? It's the Roman Empire. We know that the ten horns represent the fact that the Roman Empire was what? Divided into ten kingdoms. And after this it says a little horn rises among the ten. So now we need to identify what power is being spoken of in human history that is represented by the little horn. I'm going to go through these characteristics quickly. There are eight of them. Recently, Emmanuel Beck went through these characteristics, so I'm not going to dwell on them extensively. First characteristic, the little horn rises from the fourth beast, right? Which means that it must be what? It must be Roman. Because it rises from the head of the fourth beast, which represents what? Rome. First characteristic. Second characteristic, and this is obvious, if it rises from Rome, the second is quite obvious, it actually rises among the ten horns. What do the ten horns represent? The nations of Western Europe. So where was it going to rise? In the Middle East? Was it going to arise in Asia? No, it was going to rise where? where those ten kingdoms were, because it rises among them. And of course, Rome is in Western Europe. Third characteristic, the Bible tells us that it would rise after the ten horns. Did you remember we read that? After the ten horns are in place? Do you know when the ten horns were fully in place? In the year 476 AD. You can look it up on the internet if you want. On that date, the last emperor of the Roman Empire was deposed. No more emperors of the Western Roman Empire. His name was Romulus Augustulus. After that, there was no law and order in the empire. It was chaos because there was no central authority. The barbarian kingdoms had carved up the empire into ten kingdoms. They were complete in the year 476. So it would have to be a power that rose after the year 476. It would have to pluck up through the help of the state, because there's a union of iron and clay, according to what we notice, it would have to pluck up three of the ten. And that's exactly what happened. The Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths were uprooted by the political power, instigated by the church, because these nations were Aryan. They believed that Jesus was created, and they did not have the same teachings as the church. So the church influenced the state to conquer these powers, and there's no nation in Europe that actually descends from them. Another characteristic is that this little horn would speak great words against the Most High. Revelation identifies these great words as blasphemy. Now the question is, what is blasphemy? You know, some people think blasphemy is an individual who raises his fist and curses God, you know, because he's an atheist. That's not the biblical definition of blasphemy. You can be a religious person and blaspheme. What is blasphemy? Two things, according to the biblical definition. John 10, verse 33, 
Jesus had just said, I and my Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. And notice what we find in John 10, 33. Jesus says, are you going to stone me? What are you stoning me for? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. So any man who claims to be God on earth is committing blasphemy. There's another definition of blasphemy. It's related to this first one. Mark chapter 2 and verse 7. Jesus had just said to a paralytic, paralytic your sins are forgiven. And the Jews got mad again. And uh, notice what they said in Mark 2 verse 7. Why does this man speak what? Blasphemies like this. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So it would have to be a power that claims to have God's representative on earth and that claims that it has the power to what? The power to forgive sins. Are you starting to catch a picture of what this power is? Let's go through the characteristics. It has to be Roman. It has to rise in Western Europe, obviously. It has to rise to power after the year 476. It had to use the state to pluck up three of the ten kingdoms for, for being heretical. It had to claim to have God's representative on earth and claim to have the power to forgive sins. What power are we talking about here? There's no doubt whatsoever we're talking about the Roman Catholic papacy. And by the way, this idea of saying that they can forgive sins and that the Pope is God's representative on earth is only the tip of the iceberg. Because let me mention some other things that show that the papacy claims that they have God's representative on earth. Does the papacy claim to have the right to set up and remove kings? Just look at the history of the Middle Ages. They say, we have the right to set up kings and to remove kings. Uh, who does that prerogative belong to in, in, according to Scripture? It belongs to God. Furthermore, this power encourages people to bow down before its leader, before the Pope. Man, even an angel would not allow John to, to bow before him. And this man demands that anyone who comes into his presence should bow. Furthermore, he encourages people to call him Holy Father. When Jesus said that only one you should call Father, and he's not talking about our earthly father, he's talking about calling someone our spiritual father, and yet this individual claims to have the right to be called the Holy Father. Furthermore, during the Middle Ages, he claimed to have the right to execute the death penalty. Who is the only one who will have the right to do that? God, the giver of life. Furthermore, he claims to have changed God's law. Who would be the only one who could change God's law? God himself. Furthermore, he claimed to be the supreme judge in things on heaven, earth, and in hell. I have quotations that I could read you where this is true. And furthermore, this is a power that claims to have the infallible ability to teach in faith and morals. They claim that the Pope is infallible. The Bible says that only one is infallible, and that is who? That is God. So just saying that he's God on earth and claiming to have the power to forgive sins is only the tip of the iceberg. There's all types of other characteristics that show that this power blasphemed against God. Characteristic number six, this power was a persecuting power. Persecuted God's faithful people. Have you ever heard of the holy office of the Inquisition? There was nothing holy about it. And you know, John Paul II offered an apology several years ago, I think it was in 1998. 
He, he took months to draft it, very carefully chosen words, and he actually said that he, the, the church apologized for a few misguided individuals who were involved in persecution. But the Inquisition was not some misguided individuals. It was established and used by the church. And it was established by the papacy. Characteristic number seven, this power claims to have been able to change God's holy law. Does the papacy claim to have changed God's holy law? It most certainly does. I have about 12 pages of quotations. By the way, if anybody is interested, I'm synthesizing 132 pages tonight. Size 10 type. It's on our website, secretsunsealed.org. You can download it. I have 12 pages of quotations from different Roman Catholic scholars, priests, popes, that say, we change the Sabbath to Sunday by the authority that Christ gave to us. Furthermore, they extracted the second commandment from the catechism that says, don't worship images, and they split the 10th commandment in two. Don't covet your neighbor's things, and don't covet your neighbor's wife, because if you take out one, you have to divide number 10 in two. So this power claims to have changed God's holy law. And how long was it going to rule? It was going to rule according to what we read, time, times, and what? And half a time. How long is that? It is three and a half years. But in prophecy, a year is, a day is equivalent to what? To a year. And so you multiply three and a half times 360 days for each year, and the result is what? 1,260 years. This is the amazing thing. The last of the three opposing horns was uprooted in 538 when the Ostrogoths were severely defeated and expelled from Rome. And it was in February of 538. We know the month. We don't know the exact day. 1798. February 12. We do know the date in 1798. The general of Napoleon's armies, General Berthier, entered Rome. They arrested the Pope. He was deposed. He was taken captive to France, where he died in exile. And every nation in Europe after that began withdrawing their support from the papacy. None of them raised one finger to help the papacy when the deadly wound was given. Not one! During the Middle Ages, all of the nations would have arisen to defend the papacy. Now, none of them wanted anything to do with the papacy. And now you have a proliferation of democratic governments after 1798. So what power is being spoken of here? This power is no doubt the Roman Catholic papacy. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Daniel 7, 26 and 27. After speaking about the deplorable work of the little horn, it says, but the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion. What is the purpose of that judgment? To take away whose dominion? The little horn's dominion. To consume and destroy it forever. And then what's going to happen? Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given the people to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve him and obey him. Are the tables going to be turned? Yes, the verdict is pronounced in heaven. 
But the verdict is actually implemented when Jesus establishes His kingdom and He gives His kingdom to the saints of the Most High. Now we need to look at the perspective of Revelation, and we don't have much time to do this, but let's see how it goes. Revelation chapter 12 and verses 1 through 5. See, Revelation and Daniel uh, go together. Revelation 12 verses 1 through 5, I'm going to read it quickly. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold a great, listen to this, fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns. Uh, do we have a dragon-like beast in Daniel 7? Yes, does it have ten horns? Absolutely. Now notice, it continues saying in verse 4, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Who was that child? Jesus. Did the devil stand next to, next to Mary when Mary was going to be born with the pitchfork in his hand and his tail sticking out and horns coming out of his head? Of course not. How did the devil seek to accomplish his purpose? It wasn't personally, it was through what? Through a ruler of the Roman Empire. What was his name? Herod. Now let's continue. Notice verse, uh, once again, the last part of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a what? Remember that. A male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God into his throne. What, what event is that referring to? It's referring to the ascension of Jesus Christ. So we have in this passage the birth of Jesus and his ascension. What empire was ruling during that period? The Roman Empire. So what is the fourth beast? What is this dragon beast? Clearly it represents what? The fourth beast is Rome. Go with me to Matthew chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. Matthew chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. This is how Jesus was... Uh, um, well, this is the way the devil tried to kill Jesus. Notice. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the what? Male children. What did we read in Revelation 12? She, she bore a what? A male child. What does this say? He had all of the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all their districts from two years and older, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So through whom does the devil try to slay the child that is born? Through Herod, who is a ruler of what? Of Rome. Now let's go to Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2. Revelation 13, 1 and 2. Very important historical reference point. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Verse 2 is key. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. How many beasts are mentioned here in this verse, verse 2? Is there a leopard? Is there a bear? Is there a lion? Is there a dragon beast? Are these the same four beasts that we found in Daniel chapter 7? Yes, and we don't have a lot of time, but let me, let me tell you this. If you look at the order of the beasts in Daniel chapter 7, it's lion, bear, leopard, dragon. But in Revelation chapter 13, it's dragon, leopard, bear, lion. Do you know why? 
because Daniel is living in the time of the lion and he's looking forwards, whereas John is living in the time of the dragon and he's looking backwards. Very important reference point. So you notice you have a lion, a bear, a leopard, a dragon. How many horns does the dragon have? We already noticed this. It had ten horns. And then the ten-horned dragon gives its what? His power, his throne, and great authority to the beast. Just like the fourth beast gave its power to the little horn. In other words, the beast is the same as the little horn. Let me prove it to you. Revelation 13, verse 5. And verse 7, you're going to see that the beast of Revelation 13 does the same thing as the little horn in Daniel 7. It says he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. Is that what the little horn did? Absolutely. And he was given authority to continue 42 months. Is that the same time period? Of course. If the year has 360 days, how many months, how many days does a month have? 30. Now you multiply 30 days times 42 months, what is the result? 1,260. It's a different way of explaining the same time period. So it says, He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue 42 months. It was granted to Him to make war with the saints. Did the little horn do that? And overcome them. Did the little horn do that? Absolutely. And authority was given Him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Is the beast the same as the little horn? You see the same sequence, same identical sequence. Now there's something that I want us to notice. This will introduce tomorrow's subject, Revelation 13, verse 6. We're not going to comment on it tonight, but I want you to see it. Speaking about this beast, it says, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. And what's next? His tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. Tomorrow we're going to study Daniel 8. And we're going to find the little horn trampling on the sanctuary. Revelation 13 has that detail. We haven't studied it tonight, but we're going to study it, Lord willing, tomorrow night. Now, let's go to Revelation 14, 6 and 7. We've already found the lion, the bear, the leopard, the dragon, the ten horns, the beast that rules 42 months. Would you expect that there would be a judgment after this? Absolutely. Notice Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice. By the way, when this message is being given, can people still be saved? Or has Jesus come already? That's a dumb question. Why would you preach the gospel if Jesus already came? So is the door of mercy open at this point? Yeah, because the gospel is being what? Preached. Now notice, very important, Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment will come. Uh-uh. That in Greek is called an aorist. It is a punctual past. In other words, when this first angel is proclaiming his message, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. The judgment begins while the gospel is being what? while the gospel is being preached. And then it says, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So the question is, does the judgment begin, begin before Jesus comes? Absolutely. Because the hour of God's judgment comes while the everlasting gospel is being preached. Do you see that point? Furthermore, listen up to what I'm going to say. 
after the first angel's message where it says the hour of his judgment has come, you have a second message calling God's people to come out of Babylon. That can't take place after the second coming of Jesus, or at the second coming. And then the third message says, beware of the beast and his image and his mark. Is the door of probation still open when, God's pe when the people are being warned about the mark of the beast? Absolutely. And only after these three messages are proclaimed, do you see Jesus in Revelation 14, 14, seated on a cloud, coming back to the earth. So the judgment begins after 1798, after the work of the little horn, but it takes place in heaven before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now let's review what we studied very briefly. We have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, the Roman Empire, Rome divided, the little horn, which is the papacy, and then after the little horn rules 1,260 years, you have what? You have the judgment that takes place in heaven, and then eventually the time comes when God's people will inherit what? The kingdom based on the verdict that was reached in the judgment that took place in heaven. Now can we know the specific date when that judgment began? Well, don't miss the next exciting episode. <laughs> Tomorrow night we will give the exact date of the beginning of the judgment. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.